People, including I think the majority of us here today, long for, desire, stability, security, safety. We want that individually, and if we have families, we desire it for our families as well. We want it in the neighborhoods that we live in. Nations also desire this together as well. The question is, where can security, stability, safety be found? Where should we look for it? And what are we willing to sacrifice in order to potentially obtain it? And as we search for it, we have to entertain the possibility that we might look for security or safety, stability in the wrong place, in a system or a person who can't ultimately work for our good. This morning in our passage, we'll see God's people looking for safety and security, stability, but looking in the wrong place. And as we watch them, I think we'll also see much of ourselves as well. So you have a Bible today. Turn to the book of 1 Samuel, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Today in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you'll find it on page 230 in the Bibles we provided near you, page 230. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the passage in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. We'll be in chapter 8. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and I'll mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. So at the back of the room, there's a table, a stack of Bibles there. Following the service, we'd encourage you to stop by there, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you this morning. So today we're going to continue our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. And last week we saw Samuel, who plays a a central role as the prophet of God, as well as this, this unique role of judge, which is a leader of God's people of Israel. We saw that he called God's people back from worshiping other gods. He called them to return to the Lord, to to repent of that. And and by God's grace, they did. They returned to the Lord. They repented of their false worship. They set aside these other gods. They came and confessed their sin to the Lord. While doing so, the neighboring Philistines came to attack. The people were fearful, desiring security and safety. And they asked Samuel, pray to the Lord for us. Samuel did. And as the Philistines came, they they waited and he prayed and God thundered from heaven and the Philistines were defeated. Without the Israelites even needing to fight at all, the Lord won the battle for them. At the end of chapter 7, we were told of how Samuel's life continued in this sort of circuit of leading uh, the nation of Israel, of judging and providing justice for God's people. That's where we pick it up today in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first, firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. 
And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. This morning in this chapter, we'll see this emphasis. Be careful of a desire to be like the world, and instead, trust in our generous king. Be careful of a desire to be like the world and instead trust in our generous king. And we'll look at our passage in four parts. So first we'll see corruption. Second, we'll see rejection. Third, we'll see caution. And then last, we'll see decision. So first we see corruption in verses one to three. We see in verse one that Samuel was growing older. Now, his life is not near the end yet because he'll still play a key role moving forward in this book. But he decided to make his two sons judges alongside with him in his role. As we said, these judges were not identical to judges we have today, but instead they had more of a general leadership role. They did work for justice, but they were more a general leader of God's people. And perhaps because he thought he needed more help, because maybe he didn't feel like he could travel as much as he once did around Israel, Samuel sets aside on his own his two sons, Joel and Abijah. And we see this dark note in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Here we see multiple aspects of leadership failure. The role of priests among God's people was passed down through a family line. God's good design would be passed down through the line of the Levites. 
But the role of judge was not to be passed in a family line. God explicitly was choosing a judge here and there, but but never passing it on from, from father to sons. So Samuel here did not have the authority for he himself to set aside his sons as judges to take up this role. We see that Samuel's sons also lacked the character needed for this role. We see that his sons were corrupt. Now Samuel had generally faithfully followed his God and his word. But we're told Samuel's sons did not walk in his ways and therefore also were not walking in God's ways. Now where in particular did they wander? We're told that they turned aside after gain. So they turn aside, especially after financial, material gain. And what does this look like? We're told, verse 3, they took bribes and perverted justice. So they were tempted by their desire for more. For more things, for more money, for wealth. And they used their position, their authority, as the very means by which they would obtain this. They leveraged their authority to take from others that they might gain. Temptation for material gain is a real danger for all of us. All of us are prone to naturally want more. If we're honest, we we rarely think, "I, I have enough. I don't need anything else in this life. I can't imagine anything else that I would need to obtain. Now, typically, we think we need more. Maybe just a little more, or honestly, often a lot more. We want, we desire. We see what others have, and we want what they have as well. And very often, we think, honestly, we're entitled to it. Entitlement, to some extent, and power drove these sons to take from the people. It's fair, I wonder, in your life, where is the temptation for material gain significant and powerful for you? Where do you find that rising up within? Our driving desire for more can also often lead us down these destructive paths, leading us to compromise in areas we never would have imagined. So if you're honest, are there areas where you've been compromising, taking actions that are honestly sinful, even if commonly practiced by others? Everyone else in your workplace does the same. We just all do it. Where is it you might be making ungodly choices because of a desire for more? This certainly can be especially true for those in authority, as we see with these sons. They have authority. They leverage that authority for their own gain. And so, friend, if you are in authority now, or if you find yourself in authority in the future, how does your desire for gain potentially shape your decisions, your actions? The situation of Samuel and his sons is also relevant as we think about the life together in the local church. In the church, we're we're given in the New Testament two particular offices for the church, that of elder, pastor, one office, and the role of deacon. 
And in the scripture, we're given qualifications for those who would serve in this role. And in both elder and deacon qualifications, it mentions this very temptation. Deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 tells us this, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Elders that we also call pastors. Titus chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, for an overseer, also the term for elder, pastor, as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, lover of God, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's the word for us, for those, myself included, who are elders, pastors here, deacons here, and those who would aspire for such. And friend, if this is your church, pray. Pray that God would continue to provide for us elders, pastors, deacons who wouldn't be greedy for gain, who wouldn't abuse authority for the sake of material gain. And pray that God would protect the ones that we do have. And just as the role of judge was not passed from one generation to the next, so typically church leadership also is not passed along that way. It is certainly possible for for there to be family, uh, uh, biological family in leadership in the same church, but I would just say that has to be done extremely carefully. Simply because one is the pastor doesn't mean his son should be the pastor. Doesn't mean his family should be in the role. So that would be something every local church should be really careful to, not following in Samuel's pattern here. This is the second time in 1 Samuel we've seen a spiritual leader with adult children who are not following the Lord. We saw a really horrible picture of Eli and his sons. Their their corruption and, and how Eli had not corrected them, even though he had the power to do so. He could have removed them from their role of priest, and yet he did not. It seemed that perhaps Samuel was a more faithful father. Still, his sons don't follow the Lord. It's a weighty picture for those of us who are parents. And for parents of adult children, we want to do all that we can as we raise our kids to point them to Jesus to love them, to to sow seeds of the gospel, to incorporate them in a local church where they would also be brought in. But friends, as parents, we cannot make our children become Christians. And it's a painful thing for parents to have children who who don't follow Christ. And it's very easy to, to feel like it's your fault. It's something that you did wrong. Friend, as a parent of adult children, I, I admit that I have many regrets as a parent. None of us are perfect parents. You are not a perfect parent. But you also cannot make, so you're not responsible if your children wander from the faith or don't turn to Christ. Friend, that, that's a burden you can't bear that is not for you. And so we pray for our adult children. They might turn to and follow and know Christ. So we see corruption. But then second, we see rejection in verses four through nine. So all the elders of Israel, the leaders come to Samuel, look at verse five, and they say, your sons don't walk in your ways. So evidently their corruption is well known. Others know what they're doing. They're they're taking these bribes. 
That they're eager, they're trying to obtain gain as much as they can. So they're correct in their assessment. So what is their solution? They say, therefore now appoint for us a king to judge us, to play this same role that your sons are playing like all the nations. So they say, give us a king like all the nations around us. Every neighboring country has a king. Give us a king like them. Now, do they have any basis for this in God's word? Or was, was this a, a thoroughly sinful request from the very beginning? Or, or is there any indication that, that God might actually guide them into doing this? Earlier in Deuteronomy 17, the, the setting up of a king is anticipated. So in fact, in God's word, there are instructions if there were to be a king given in Deuteronomy 17. So Deuteronomy 17, 14 says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God had anticipated that this would happen among his people. And then continuing that passage, he outlines what, what this king was to look like. So notice that the leaders in 1 Samuel used some of the same language. They had said, appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Deuteronomy 17, 14 says, like all the nations. So they used language of God's word in their request or their demand for a king. So having a king was not absolutely prohibited. In fact, there's an allowance for it in Deuteronomy 17. But the passage continues in Deuteronomy 17 with some requirements of what these kings were to be like. We're told the Lord was to choose the king. The king must be an Israelite, not a foreigner. He must not acquire many horses. He is not to have many wives. He must not acquire excessive gold and silver. And he must write for himself a copy of the book of the law of God. And he was to read it all the days of his life. So here was guidance. If there were to be a king, this is what those kings were to be like. We see in light of this request, verse 6, that this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. For he, in particular, heard it as them rejecting him. Which there's truth to that. They're certainly rejecting his sons. And likely him as well. So Samuel prays to the Lord. He voices his concern. But the Lord answers, look at verse 7. The Lord tells Samuel, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel was taking it personal as, as they're rejecting him. But it's more than that, the Lord says, they're rejecting their covenant God from being king over them. So the Lord is saying at this time, it's not that Israel didn't have a king. They had a king. It was him, their God. He had been and was their king. But now they're saying, give us another king. Give us a different king. Now, this was not the first time that God's people had rejected their Lord. As he recounts verse 8, he says, from the very day he brought them out of Egypt. They had been enslaved under Pharaoh, and the Lord, by his powerful hand, had brought them out to make him his people. He says, from the very beginning, they've served other gods. Now they're not only rejecting Samuel, but also, again, rejecting the Lord. So the Lord told Samuel, verse 9, obey their voice, but first solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the Lord says, they, they, his people had again and again forsaken their God and turned elsewhere. And now they're doing it in a very specific, pronounced way. Give us a king 
a different king from the king that we have. This is very often our story as well. For if we're Christians, our gracious Savior and King Jesus rescued us out of slavery, just as the Lord had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, he rescued us from slavery to, to sin and to death. They received this gift of deliverance that God had given, but then so very quickly they turned away. They said, it's not enough. We want to live on our own. We want to go our own way. And we so often do the same. Our gracious Savior and King rescued us. But we so often want to receive the gift of salvation. That is true, but but we don't want to live in allegiance to Jesus. We want his gifts, but not his guidance and not his instructions. We want to go our own way. So friend, if you're a Christian, are there ways that you have turned away in your heart from the true king? Are there ways that you're currently rejecting him by, by choices that you're making? As I mentioned, we do see that when they bring their request, they use some of the language of scripture, like all the nations. But we're seeing that they don't really want God's plan for a king, for they, they don't quote the rest of Deuteronomy 17. They just, they just want a little bit of that. We so easily can do the same. We can use words of scripture, even biblical texts, but out of context, in a very limited way, to say what we wanted to say, but not in fact what it actually says. But because we're quoting scripture, or it sounds like scripture, it actually sounds quite persuasive to us and to others. So one who wants to be aggressive in addressing the mistakes of others, who wants to confront people in a very direct way, might say, well, Jesus went to the temple and he turned over tables and he ran the merchants out of there. So me, in my aggressive way, I'm just being like Jesus. Except Jesus didn't do it regularly. Jesus had perfect motives. We don't. Nowhere did he tell us, go therefore and turn over tables, either literally or metaphorically. So though it sounds convincing, I'm just being like Jesus. So often just an excuse to do what I've already decided I want to do. Or one might say, well, well, God calls us to love one another, which he absolutely does. Jesus gives this command, as I have loved you, love one another. God's people must love one another. But sometimes we want to, to shrink down that love. And to say that to love one another must mean that I must always encourage, I must always agree with another in order to love them. Correction isn't loving, so I must be for them and supporting in every way if I truly love them. Instead of seeing that sometimes love calls us to correct. Sometimes love calls us to confront. Sometimes out of love, we have to pursue one wandering in sin. There's a much more holistic picture biblically of love than than only one narrow piece. There are other ways that you sometimes are are using the words of Scripture, but it's a means of justifying what you want to do or to justify not doing something that God has called you to do. So we see rejection, 
But then third, we see caution in verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told the people what the Lord had said. And it certainly is a solemn warning. Starting in verse 11, he says, this is what the king will do. He will take your sons to serve in his army, to plow his fields, to reap the harvest, and to equip the chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take a tax from your grain and your vineyards. He will take the best servants and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks. Finally, verse 17, and you shall be his slaves. It's quite a daunting description. This king will take your children He will take your land, your crops, your money, and then eventually he will take you. For this is what kings, this is what monarchs typically do. They take and take and take. Even good kings or queens were known as good because they they take less than others. So we see them as a really good and gracious king. Sounds like a great deal being offered here, right? Trust in this king. He will take everything that you have, and eventually he will take you. Up until now, their God has been their king. And what has he done? Has he taken from them or given to them? He had not enslaved them in Egypt. He had saved them out of Egypt. He's the one who delivered them. He had not taken land from them. In fact, he's the one who had given them land. The very land they were standing on that day, God had given them land, not taken land. When they were wandering in the desert, God had not taken their food. He had given them manna day after day. Consistently, God was the one giving and giving and giving, taking nothing from them, but they were evidently dissatisfied with God's rule over them. They wanted freedom from their God. In fact, the Lord is graciously warning them that where they think they'll find freedom in this other king, they will actually ultimately find enslavement. That king who you think will give you security and stability and safety, the king who will take you out from under the Lord's, his hand will ultimately enslave you as his own slave. When so often before we come to know Jesus, perhaps considering Christianity for the very first time, may, may sound like giving up our freedom. Because personally, individually, we want to be free. We want to go our own way. So we say, why would I want to follow a God who has commands, who has instructions, who has expectations for us? In fact, what we see across the scriptures is that Jesus came to bring freedom, to free us from enslavement, even as he brings us in to follow him. As Christians, we sometimes have desires that lead us to be tempted to go our own way. It is true, Jesus calls us to a different way of living. When we follow Jesus as king, there there are commands, there are expectations, and it is always out of step with the world around us. And so it can be tempting to think, well, well, maybe a truer, better life would be found if I let go of following Jesus and his ways. Maybe a truer and better life is found in embracing all of my desires, whatever they may be, because isn't that what it means to truly be human? 
To not try to restrain any desires, but to embrace them all. In fact, what we think will provide freedom ultimately enslaves. God tells them that he will give them what they want. Verse 18. And he says, then in that day, you will cry out because of your king who you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So this is what you want. I'm going to give it to you. Eventually, you'll feel the weight of it, and you will ask for my help. And soberingly, the Lord says, I won't intervene at that point. I won't answer your prayer that day. He was going to hand them over to their desires. What they so wanted, he would give that to them. And they would in time see, this is not what we thought it was going to be. This is not what we bargained for. But God is so kind, so gracious, that in his action of not answering, of not intervening, that would not be permanent. For he wouldn't answer them that day, but a day would come when he would answer their cries, their longing. In his grace, the King, Jesus Christ, would come near. Take on flesh and walk the earth. He humbled himself to come near. Jesus did not come to take from us. He came to give. The only thing Jesus takes from us is our sin. He took from us our sin upon himself. He took our death in our place. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this, for even the son of man referring to himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's King Jesus. He did not come here to take from us, but he came to serve us. What an astounding king. The, the God of the universe comes near in the flesh to serve, to give and to give and to give. But if you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to know of Jesus Christ. He is the one true king, but he's a king unlike any other. He needs nothing from us. He did not come to take from us, but he came to give to us life eternal. He came to give to us grace and peace and mercy day by day. He came to give to us the very spirit of God who dwells in us now to sustain us for daily living here and now. And true freedom is found in this one true king. So we see caution. And then fourth and last, we see decision in verses 19 to 22. So, so Samuel gives them this thorough, dark warning. And we would think when they heard it, surely they would rethink this request. And think, well, maybe we were wrong. I mean, that, that sounds like a really bad deal. However difficult it may be currently living under God, we, we don't really want it after you tell us what that's going to be like. But instead, look at verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they have made the decision to go down this path. And here they show us a little bit more of their motivation, of why they want this king. 
They want a king to be like all the nations in certain ways. One, they want a king to judge over us. Not these judges like Samuel and those before, because honestly, it's kind of a strange, unique office that these judges had. Just the name alone is weird compared to king. So every other nation has a king. So, so give us a king to, to lead us like the other nations. You know, they also want a king to go out before us, to represent them with other nations. If, if two nations were at odds, well, the, the kings would come together. And so you can imagine the neighboring nations approaching, well, send us your king. And they would say, well, I mean, our king is God and he's invisible. Okay, well, who can we talk to? We have this judge. What's a judge? Well, it's not like that. It's, it's a judge like this. When it's, it's this guy, Samuel, he's kind of old. So he's our leader. I mean, it's, it's an odd thing. So like we, we simply want to be like everyone else who has a human king that they can send out and represent them. That is what we want. They so much want to be like the neighboring nations. It's not easy being different from the world around us. It's never easy as a Christian, as we follow Jesus, to be different, to be out of step with the world around us. It's not easy, no matter how old or young we are, kids, it's not easy. It won't be easy to follow Jesus because often you will be different from the world. Just because we get older, still not easy to be different. They also say they want a king to fight our battles for us. We want a human king who can go out and represent us in these battles. He will lead us in. A powerful king who could fight in our place and win these battles for us. And yet, ironically, it's just what we saw in chapter 7. The Philistines came. And their invisible king, their God, intervened. Thundered from heaven. They won the battle without them needing to do anything at all. So he had gone out before them. He had won their battle for them, and yet that was not enough. They wanted one like all the peoples around them. So Samuel repeated these words to the Lord, and the Lord said in verse 22, obey their voice, make them a king. Give them what they want. God was going to give them what they so desperately desired. Sometimes God gives us what we want so bad as a means of growing us in wisdom and maturity by sometimes allowing us to have something that may turn out to be difficult, even painful, but we were so convinced we must have it. But as a gracious father, he may give it to us for a time to show us our lack of wisdom to show us our wrong desires. Now, in his grace and kind, kindness, he, he so often withholds things that we're asking for that he knows are not good for us, and so he withholds them from us. And sometimes as our gracious God wants to guide us towards his ways, he will at times let us have these things we so desperately desire, that it might wake us up, shake us free, that we might return to trust in him. So they would receive a king, a king like the nations. And we'll see that play out in the coming weeks. 
But as we read ahead through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, if we read throughout the Old Testament, we'll see king after king now over God's people. And in general, it's a disaster. The kings are sinful, they are corrupt, they do exactly, with a very few exceptions, what the Lord had said they were going to do. But this longing for a king is good and right. The internal longing that we all have, we do desire one to reign over us, to represent us, to fight our battles for us, to give justice and make things right, to give us security and stability. And that longing is right because it can, can be fulfilled, but fulfilled only in King Jesus. He came near unlike any other king, humbling himself, taking on flesh, walking on earth like us. But his kingdom, friends, is different from any other kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. John chapter 18, verses 33 to 36, we see this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So from this one true king who comes, comes with a unique kingdom, unlike every other kingdom. It is not of this world. It is not confined to one geopolitical nation. Instead, it is made up of all those who trust in Jesus from people from nations and tribes and tongues, and one day from people from every nation and tribe and tongue. But make no mistake, friends, his kingdom is different. And so as we walk in the kingdom of Jesus, we will often be out of step with the world around us. And sometimes we will feel it more strongly than others. And in resistance to that, sometimes we will long to be like the people around us, to be like the nations. And we'll again and again face the choice. Will we trust in Jesus and follow his ways? They so much didn't want to be different. And friends, we must be careful of this. Alert to the fear of being different that can drive so many of our choices. Friends, we're gonna see the uniqueness, the goodness, the generosity of King Jesus. Friend, he is worthy of our trust. His kingdom is worthy of our lives. He gives to us. He will not take. So let's keep trusting in him. Trust him today. Trust him this week. Keep trusting him with all of our lives.